Shabbat Shalom. This morning's reading is from Isaiah 49, 1 through 3, and I'm reading from the complete Jewish Bible. Coastlands, listen to me. Listen, you peoples from afar away. Adonai has called me from the womb. Before I was born, he had spoken my name. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword while hiding me in the shadow of his hand. He has made me like a sharpened arrow while concealing me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, through whom I will show my glory. Okay, I think this has been one of these Shabbatot where it seems like there are missed communication. We didn't read all of verses 1 to 13. So we will probably end up doing that through the message. Just wanted to give you a heads up that when you go up for the dedication of the sukkah, unless you're someone who enjoys being out in the um, damp and frigid environment, um, if you come from Minnesota or other such uh, places, then uh, you might enjoy it. But I think for the rest of us more timid souls, uh, we will enjoy the blessings of dedication of the sukkah and then um, and the blessing for the lulav and the etrog, which, by the way, is here. And then we're going to hoof it and find some nice warm place. So just want to give you a heads up here. Uh, we usually devote a great deal of time to staying out in a sukkah. Uh, by the way, in Israel, the pronunciation is sukkah. But since we are in a diaspora, we can say sukkah. Um, There's so much that can be uh, mentioned about sukkah because it is uh, a holiday with a number of different meanings. But uh, I felt led this Shabbat to address the fact that God somehow brings different people together. And at least for me, the beginning of that is the lulav, where you have three species, three different species. You have willow and palm and myrtle bound together. It's such a uh, vivid example of how God takes different people, different backgrounds, and binds us together. This is something that the rabbis picked up on because uh, during temple times, if you read Numbers chapter 29, you'll see that there were um, a number of bulls that were sacrificed. And if you were to count them as the rabbis did, you'll find that there were a total of 70 bulls that were sacrificed on Sukkot. And the rabbis considered that to be the symbolic number of all the nations uh, of the world. 
So that also together with the fact that Zechariah 14 speaks about God's mandate that at the end of time, the Messianic era, all nations will come to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival. And so putting both of those together, the rabbis determined that one element of Sukkot, and needless to say, I fully agree with that, is that it points to God's commitment and God's heart for the nations. The holidays typically tend to be very much about Israel, but this is one holiday that is particularly focused on the nations, and today I, I, I want to focus on God's plan for salvation for the nations, for the Gentile nations that was established before the foundation of the world. There was not an oops, an afterthought, and if you stop to think for a, mom for a moment that God operates beyond time, in other words, he's not like us where we look at the time, look at, at the watch, look at the clock, um, look at our uh, cell phone, etc., etc. God operates beyond that. So as far as his way of doing things, um, his plans have already been accomplished. Now, that frankly boggles my mind because I, I can't really get my arms around that. But my point simply is that as far as God is concerned, the salvation of the Gentile nations has already been accomplished. And it's just a matter of that being worked out. Now we see that throughout Scripture, particularly in Acts 11, which I consider to be the Gentile Pentecost, because it was a outpouring of the Spirit of God specifically on, on a group of people who were not Jewish, unlike Acts 2, where it was uh, specifically the people of Israel, the Jewish people, the pilgrims. But it's good to remember that God has been working with Gentile nations way before Pentecost. That his plans have been at work specifically with individuals. But even, for example, at the ten plagues, you'll find a statement that says, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring Israelites out of it. And if you remember that the word for no, yada in Hebrew, conveys the sense of experiential or relational knowledge, you understand the fact that God was concerned about the Egyptians. And that is why in Exodus 12, 12, the Lord says, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. In other words, the Lord was using the ten plagues to demonstrate to everybody the futility of worshiping these gods. And of course, this had to be to Israel, but as well it had to be a powerful message for the Egyptians to see that their gods were meaningless. And we know that some of them became convinced 
and joined Israel and came out of Egypt together, they were called the mixed multitude. And there were all kinds of other examples. Uh, we've periodically talked about Rahab, who was part of a people that was consigned to destruction by God. The Canaanites uh, had God's judgment upon them, but yet Rahab, the prostitute, embraced the God of Israel and became part and parcel of the nation of Israel. In fact, Joshua 6 tells us that she was part of the, of the community of faith of the nation of Israel. We see that in Yeshua's ministry, even though it is clear that his priority given to him by the Father was for him to minister to the nation of Israel. Yet, you see very powerful examples of how the kingdom of God broke through and impacted non-Jews, particularly with a couple of centurions. One, the centurion who had the paralyzed servant, and Yeshua said in response to him, I have not seen such faith in all of Israel. We also see the Phoenician woman who sought the Lord for the healing of her daughter. Same kind of situation. Yeshua looks at these Gentiles and marvels at the kind of faith that they exhibited that he had not seen with his own people. And by the way, these examples... There are actually three examples in Matthew of Yeshua reaching out and ministering to non-Jews. And by the way, Matthew is written to convey the good news of Yeshua primarily to a Jewish audience. So I find it very intriguing that in Matthew you find these three very vivid examples of how the kingdom of God impacted non-Jews. But part of the picture is that throughout the prophetic writing, and by the way, we've been looking at the prophetic writing in Scripture the last several, several weeks to see how God has been at work with the nation of Israel. And it's important for us to realize that throughout God's plan to work with Israel, His heart has always been there to use his work with Israel as a platform to reach the Gentile nations. Very powerful statement in Ezekiel. I wanted to read to you a couple of verses from Ezekiel 36, if you turn with me for a moment. Ezekiel 36, 23, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them, then the nations will know that I am the Lord. Same kind of expression as we see in Exodus in regards to the Egyptians. The nations will know that I am the Lord declares the sovereign Lord when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. In other words, the situation that Israel found itself in in exile was unacceptable as far as God was concerned. It showed God to be someone who didn't have what it, what it took to deliver his people. And as far as God was concerned, this situation was intolerable and had to be repaired. The Lord said, 
I had compassion on my great name, and because of that, I set in motion certain things that I'm going to do. And each Shabbat, we recite a portion of that, but I wanted to back up and look at verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, and from all your idols, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws and you will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. By the way, that... Verse 27, it's a very, very strong statement where the Lord is literally saying, I will act, and as a result of my action, you will act. In other words, he is the prime mover. He's the causative agent. I will act, I will do, and then you will do. What is God going to do? He is going to restore Israel, bring Israel back to the land, and the result of that will be that the nations will know who he is, that he is the Lord. That's part and parcel of the Lord's plan for the nation of Israel. You know, and it's often so difficult for us to get our arms around it because when we read Scripture, we typically want to find the little snippets that are applicable to me today. God, what do you have to say to me today? All right, where's the Bible promise book? Okay, good, I found it. Read it, feed on it, get to work and do your business. Completely forgetting the rest of the context of what is taking place in the Word of God. Forgetting what God is wanting to reveal about who He is and His plans and purposes. And because of that, we have such a limited, myopic perspective on who God is because our perspective simply is, okay, God, um, I have a need. You need to meet my need. End of story. And what the Lord wants us to, to be able to do is back up and see the bigger picture, get the fuller version of just who He is, what He has in mind, for Israel and for the nations, and then be able to step back and say, okay, I get the bigger picture and I understand how I fit in it. So I want to pause for a minute and just pray and ask that the Lord would speak to each of us so that we would see the greatness of who He is. We thank you, Abba Father, for who you are. We thank you for your eternal and gracious plans. We thank you, Lord God, for your faithfulness. We pray, Lord God, that you would give us a clear understanding of who we are, each one of us are, not just as individuals, but how we fit in your larger plan and purpose. Give us eyes to see, Lord God, we pray. Speak to us, we ask in Yeshua's name.
Amen. Isaiah begins by calling out to the nations. Listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. Even, so even though this is a message that speaks to Israel, the prophet here looks at the nations and calls them to hear. And by the way, the, the word for hear in Hebrew and also in Greek have the notion of not only hearing for the sake of hearing and forgetting, but hearing with intent to listen. So when the Lord speaks, you better listen. And you better listen with intent of saying, okay, God, I want to do what you tell me to do. Rather than saying, oh, okay, this is interesting. Um, I will file it away in a round file somewhere. No, it doesn't work that way. Listen and obey. And here this song uh, or, or this scripture is part of a number of passages that have been called the servant songs because the Lord speaks about his servant, Avdi. The, the, the phrase, my servant, appears 16 times in chapters 41 to 53. Now, obviously, part of that refers to Israel because God called Israel for a purpose, to be a light to the nations. But part of, of what, it, what we see is what people have called the greater Israelite. In other words, the, the individual in Israel who is greater than the people themselves and who is able to do what the nation was not able to accomplish. So you have both the nation referred to as the servant and also an individual. And here it's a little confusing because you have both the nation being spoken of and the individual. And what you have here is an ongoing dialogue between God and an individual. Verse 3 and verse 5, just wanted to give you a bit of a smidge of a taste of that. The Lord said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. And then verse 5, now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. So this is obviously referring not to the nation, but to an individual. Now part of the picture here that we sometimes forget when we think about Yeshua's humanity, we, we understand the fact that he was hungry, that he was thirsty, that he suffered. What sometimes is put into the corner and forgotten is the simple fact that the Lord had to be Jewish in order to do what God called him to do. The fact that he was born an Israelite, that he was born in the context that, that he came into, wasn't an accident. The Lord could not have been born in China, with all due respect to anybody from China here, or, or in, in Germany or someplace else. Why? Because he was a continuation of God's previous plans and previous work with the nation of Israel. And also, he is going to be the fulfillment 
of God is, what God has laid out for the nation of Israel. So when we speak about the Lord's humanity, we have to remember the, the simple fact that he was called into a Jewish environment and that he had to be a Jew because he had to be the greater son of Israel. Now, when you think about Israel and whether or not Israel has been, in fact, the light of the world, here you have a both-and kind of a situation. On one hand, Yeshua came out of Israel, the scriptures came out of Israel, and by some estimates, there are two billion people who identify themselves as Christians. Not quite sure what the term always means. But people who identify themselves as Christians, to me, suggest that there are people who follow and believe in the God of Israel. So on one hand, the nation has been a light. On the other hand, Israel's idolatry and apostasy is pl played out in Scripture. You can read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles without understanding how the, how the fact that the, understanding the fact that the nation has not lived up to what God has called it to be. So God had to provide an individual who would complete the job. And here, Isaiah is speaking as a mouthpiece for that individual, and he is saying, I have been prepared for that task. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he had mentioned my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. What does that suggest to you? It suggests that even in the embryo, God was fashioning and preparing this individual for the task of being a light to the nation. We see similar language with Jeremiah and Paul and with David. In Psalm 139, David speaks about the fact that he, he marvels at how God fashioned him and how he prepared him for the work that he's called him to do. He fashioned me in my mother's womb. What is so significant about that? In this day and age when we seek to have our identity connected to all sorts of things, our success, our relationships, are uh, being liked and, and, and uh, thought well of by people, our ethnic identity, all these are all things where we like to hang our hat in a sense of finding our security. And there's a problem with that, folks, because each one of those are things that are, that are like mist. They appear, they're strong, and then they disappear. You know, when you think about each of those items where people tend to base their security, you realize how ephemeral 
how short-lasting they are. Think about fame. You know, the people that, that are, appear on TV and, and, and are celebrities today will be forgotten tomorrow. You have your 15 minutes of fame, then it's gone. Or relationships. We live in, in a day and age where broken relationships are, are more the norm rather than the exception. Financial and economic situation, I don't need to elaborate. I'm sure that everybody's been doing some thinking about that as we're preparing for the election. You've been hearing the pundits, the talking heads, ad infinitum, ad nauseum. Um, the only point of security that you and I have is our connection with God. This deep connection with God, knowing that He has been part of our life while we were in our mother's womb, while we were fetuses. And that because of that, our understanding that we are God's children and as we engage in taking steps to follow Him and serve Him, we have the additional joy of knowing that we are His servants and His friends. That's something that doesn't go away. It's not something that appears and disappears like a mirage. You know, now you see it, now you don't. And so, Isaiah speaking on behalf of this individual is is mentioning that a couple of times. Why? Because it's hugely important for us as we go through life to base our security on just who God is and who we are in relation to Him. Then this individual, Isaiah speaking for him, does what is very common. Verse 4, I have said, I said I have labored to no purpose. I spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Do you ever feel that way? That's also part of our humanity, part of life, the way we live it. And we see it all throughout Scripture. We see Moses having these long anguish discussions with God. One, one place in particular where he says to the Lord, Lord, look at these folks. They're obnoxious. Did I give birth to them? They're your people that you brought out of Egypt. You stuck me with that job. Wasn't real thrilled. We also know Elijah, where he gets an email from Jezebel and he runs for his life and tells the Lord, Lord, uh, I'm worthless, I'm done. I'm, I'm, uh, uh, there's nobody else who follows you and uh, he's obviously clear in the pits of depression. We see that with Paul. You know, Mr. Mack Truck, on, on several occasions, we, we see in, the, in his letters where he says, I'm afraid that my labor has been in vain with you. In other words, all the time and effort and blood, sweat, and tears that I poured into your life has gone for nothing, particularly with the Galatians, who came on strong and 
said, yes, 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 we love the Lord, etc. And then something came on the scene and they said, well, we're not sure. Maybe we need Yeshua plus this, plus that. Maybe we need to become Jewish, etc., etc. We see that even with Yeshua himself. Where the Lord on a number of occasions looks at the disciples with a great deal of frustration. He says, oh, you of little faith, I have done all these things and you've seen me do them and you don't get it. You see the Lord pouring out his heart over the fact that his people, the nation of Israel, rejected him. The majority did. He looks out over Jerusalem and, and, and cries and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stones the prophets, how often I have wished to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you're not willing. See the this, this sense of sadness on the part of the Lord because of all that he did with his people. That's something we all experience. That's part of reality. You like to think that as God calls you and God commissions you and God empowers you and, and you go great guns that, that you never have a moment where you question life, you question your calling, you question your, your fruitfulness, you question your success. It's not the case, folks. Until we see the Lord, part of reality will be those moments when we wonder, what is it all about? Until we somehow, by the grace of God, we somehow focus and connect with the Lord and find the needed strength. A wonderful example was David he was leading a band of malcontents and they came to their hometown, Ziklag, which was burned and their families were taken away and all the men were upset and they wanted to kill David and David was depressed and then somehow in the process he finds Strength in God. And that's, that's a mystery. How you go from being down and depressed and, and discouraged to somehow hanging out with God and being strengthened and empowered by Him to continue. Verse 5 here in this chapter, he says, I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. The servant of the Lord knows that despite Israel's hard-heartedness and stiff-neckedness, God is at work. In verse 6, as I read verse 6, it just blew me away, folks. I want to encourage you to ask you to dive in with me and, and see the depth of what, God, what Scripture is saying here. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob 
and to bring back those of Israel I have kept, I will also make you a light to the nations. And you want to say, wait a minute. Since when is the restoration of Israel a light thing? A piece of cake. Those of us who have been part of the Messianic Jewish movement for a while know that from a human perspective, it's anything but a piece of cake. At least from our eyes. You know, in the last 30 years, God has done amazing things and brought tens of thousands of Jews into the kingdom of God. Yet, we're still less than 1% of the Jewish community. The nation of Israel has not yet turned to its Messiah and has not been restored. The two words here that, that are used that I wanted to park, one is restore, has to do with establishing of the covenant. Let me read to you a statement in Genesis 17. God said, Yes, Genesis seventeen nineteen. Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call you will call him Isaac, Yitzchak. He will laugh. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Same word there, kum, lahakim. Um, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah is going to be empowered by God to finalize and, and fulfill and establish God's covenant with the nation of Israel. And he is going to bring back the people of Israel, particularly the remnant. Now, bringing back can refer to either bringing back physically as bringing back from captivity in Babylon, which we'll see later in, in these verses. But it can also re refer to bringing back spiritually. Same word, shuv. So this servant of the Lord is going to be commissioned to bring about repentance and establish the covenant with the nation of Israel. And that, according to God, is a piece of cake. And I looked at that and I wanted to pull what remaining hair I had. Because those of us who have labored in ministry to Jewish people uh, don't quite know how to embrace the fact that this is a piece of cake as far as God is concerned. But the message simply is that God is committed to the restoration of Israel. But part of the bigger plan here is that he's committed for the restoration of the Gentile nations. And it's not as if God wanted to use Israel. God is not a user, folks. When we think of a user, we, what, we usually, what usually comes to mind is someone who takes advantage of you and then dumps you. It's anything but what God does. Yes, He works in us and He uses us, 
But in the process, we are enriched. We're blessed. You say amen to that. And the nation of Israel is going to be has been used and will continue to be used as a light to the nation because God loves Israel. Deuteronomy 10, the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you above all nations. Not because they were cute and cuddly, but because he chose them. And that's the mystery of how God chooses people. It's a mystery. It's, it's humbling. You know, lest we think that, oh, God chose me. I must be some, some special creation, you know. Everybody should look at me and marvel at, at how spectacularly I've been, I've been made. That certainly is not the case. Knowing that God chooses us and selects us is incredibly humbling. Isn't it? Because you recognize, you look at yourself and say, who am I to be a vessel in God's hand? And the Lord speaks through Isaiah regarding this servant that he is going to be an agent of salvation for Israel, an agent of salvation for all of mankind. Part and parcel of what God wants to do. He wants to redeem Israel. Verse 7, this is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel. You may be aware of the meaning of the word Redeemer there. Goel means kinsman redeemer. Goes back to Leviticus 25 and to Ruth. It simply means that God, who redeem God, is able to redeem us because we are part of His family. You find that especially in, in Hebrews chapter two, where the writer of Hebrew te- writer of Hebrews tells us that Yeshua had to be made like his brothers. You and I are part of God's family. Because of that, He engages with us and brings about redemption. He is also the Holy One and the Faithful One. He keeps His covenant for His people. And that's true even today. You know, you look at Israel and you realize that the nation is anything but a finished piece of work. You notice the fact that the majority of the nation of Israel, particularly in Israel, but even here in the United States, majority of the nation are secular. Did you know that there is a growing segment in Judaism called humanistic Judaism that teaches that you don't need to have God in order to be a Jew in order to be a practicing Jew. To give you an example, the Passover Haggadah, the book that we use to take us through the Passover Seder, has God completely taken out and the Passover Seder is nothing more than a national celebration of 
independence and freedom. You find that a lot of Jewish people here and in Israel are committed to Eastern mysticism. In the Ramsala, which is where the Dalai Lama has his headquarters, you find two major groups of people. You find the Indians and the Tibetans, and you'll find Jews. It tells you about the misplaced hunger. It tells you about the fact that Israel is looking for God and for significance and for meaning in all the wrong places. In Israel, every year, there is a festival of a festival that honors the Indian goddess Shiva. And I can go on and on and on and on. I don't mean to depress you. I just want to give you a clearer picture of where the nation of Israel is now spiritually. Not in a good place. And yet, as far as God is concerned, it's already a done deal that the nation has been restored and that the, the Gentile nations have been impacted by that and have been also restored that a worldwide revival has come about. Mind-boggling, isn't it? Because what we see as far as facts on the ground are anything but lovely. And what the Word of God says that the Lord will roll up his sleeve, so to speak, and get to work. And all of that will, will be done. All of that will be done. And furthermore, it will be something that will be a dramatic statement. Not just to Israel or to the Gentile nations, but it will be a dramatic statement to the universe. Verse 13 gives you a flavor for the universal party that will take place when God does what he is planning to do. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountain, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Isaiah, like a lot of other very poetic passages, just likes to pile on the words to give you a fuller meaning. One word here means to sing for joy. The other one simply means to rejoice. But my favorite, and I want to ask you to pronounce it, patzach, means to break forth in song. That means spontaneity, means explosive joy, means singing. God is asking the 14ers to dance and to sing because of what he has been doing for the nation of Israel. We see that when all is said and done, that's exactly what's going to happen. Revelation 19, when I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing water, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting. Did you catch that? This is not polite um, mumbling. Shouting, hallelujah, for 
our Lord God Almighty reigns. As you read Revelation, you see a lot of that loud expression of worship. By the way, Revelation really is not about prophetic charts. If you have read it from that perspective, let me challenge you to reread Revelation and see the fact that Revelation is about worship. All kinds of ugly things happen down here and John is taken up into heaven and, and sees a celebratory party and worship of God and then he comes back down and sees the ugliness again. Then he's taken up and there's more worship going on. It's amazing. And much of it is given in a loud voice. There will be celebration. Paul tells us, if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? For their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but, but life from the dead? Do you see what Paul's saying here? A, a big chunk, a majority of the nation of Israel rejected Yeshua as the Messiah. And God used that, God worked through that to bring about salvation to the nations. By the way, again, remember that salvation for the Gentile nations was not an oops, was not an afterthought. But God used that as God is going to use the restoration of Israel to bring about fullness for the Gentiles. Why? Because God so loved the Gentile nations that he created Israel. He didn't create Israel merely because he loved Israel, but he created Israel. Yes, he loved Israel, but he loved the world. And as you look at the stage of what is happening in the nation of Israel today, yes, you have to see the facts on the ground and the talk of bombing Iran and, and, and having Hezbollah and Hamas attacking Israel and so on and so forth. Yes, those are facts on the ground. But let me encourage you to ask that the Lord will give you eyes of faith to see how he is at work behind and underneath the facts on the ground. Let me just remind you of the fact that Israel, that God has been at work inexorably and relentlessly with the nation of Israel. There have been a huge increase in the number of Jews who have accepted Yeshua in Israel over the last 15 years. And yes, it is a small percentage. But it is first fruits of the biggest harvest that the Lord is planning to have. Can you see it? If you can't, ask for those eyes of faith. Let's pray.
Lord God, we repent for our unbelief, for the fact that so much of the time, Lord, all we can see are the facts on the ground, and we allow ourselves to be anchored like lead weight by those facts on the ground. Lord God, we pray that you would increase our faith. We pray, Lord God, that you give us eyes of faith to see what you're doing in our lives and through our lives in the lives of others and much more broadly in the eyes in, in the lives of nations. Thank you, Lord God, that you are at work, that you are able to intervene. Thank you, Lord God, for your gracious and sovereign plans for the nation of Israel. Thank you, Lord God, that you plan to bring about that restoration. As we recite each Shabbat, that you will uh, sprinkle clean water upon them, give them a heart of flesh, and put your spirit. We long for that day, Lord, as we long for the day, Lord God, when you will bring about not only a restoration of Israel, but a worldwide revival. We pray for that, Lord. We ask, Lord God, that you would accomplish all of those things. And Lord God, that you would make us active and eager participants in this work of redemption. Lord God, we ask this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen.